What's the time? It's time to get ill. What's the time? It's time to get ill. So what's the time? It's time to get ill. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Illiteracy Podcast. I'm your host, Tim Benson, the Senior Policy Analyst at the Heartland Institute, a national free market think tank. Uh, we're not a very new podcast anymore, uh, but for those of you uh, tuning in for the first time, I'll uh, just basically explain what we do here in the podcast. Basically, uh, it's a podcast where I invite uh, an author on to discuss a uh, book of theirs that's been newly published or recently published, You know, something we think I think you guys would uh, like to hear a conversation about. And then hopefully at the end of the podcast, or even in the middle of the podcast, if you get your druthers about you, you uh, go out and uh, purchase the book yourself and give it a read. So if you like this podcast, please consider giving Illiteracy a five-star review at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to this show. And also by sharing with your friends, as that's the uh, best way to support programming like this. And my guest today, a uh, very, very special guest uh, uh, for me, <laughs> for me, is uh, Mr. Sean Thompson. And Sean Thompson is quite simply one of the greatest and most influential surfers in history, uh, literally changing the face of the sport and showing the world a, a whole new way to, to ride in the tube. Uh, he is the, he is a inductee of the U.S., U.S., Jewish, and South African Sports Hall of Fame and a world-renowned leadership mentor, entrepreneur, and environmentalist. Uh, he is the author of Busting Down the Door, The Surf Revolution of 75, Surfer's Code, 12 Simple Lessons for Riding Through Life, and The Code, The Power of I Will. And lastly, he is co-author, along with Noah Ben Shea, of The Surfer and the Sage, A Guide to Survive and Ride Life's Waves, which was published back in June by Familius, and is the book we will be discussing today. So, <clears throat> Mr. Thompson, uh, thank you very, very much for, for coming on the show. It's a real uh, real treat for me. Tim, it's great to, uh, great to be on the show, and certainly it's... Uh, a different listener base, and I'm hoping, <laughs> I'm hoping that your audience um, can perhaps take away something uh, useful from our conversation, and 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 perhaps uh, we'll have the opportunity to uh, to check my little book out. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure they will. I'm sure they will. So, uh, I've you know I've been watching the last like couple of days, just watching clips of you on YouTube, and oh man, I'm just thinking about how much I would have loved having YouTube as a kid, just being able to watch and learn and study different guys and their techniques and all that sort of stuff. But, and I was, uh, clicking through the videos and there's that, you know, that famous one of you and, and Mark Richards, that, uh, that dual, that dual tube ride at, uh, off the wall, uh, on the North shore, uh, just, you know, just down the beach from pipeline back in uh, 75, 76, somewhere in there. And on the comments, <laughs> Uh, some guy commented uh, under the video that the, that that ride is uh, etched in the memories of every stoner kid that grew up surfing in the 70s. <laughs> and uh, I thought that's pretty funny because it's true. And it's, you know, it's not just true for 70s kids, but also for us 80s and 90s kids like myself and probably even for uh, today's kids. And, um, you know, it's just a it's a, it's a treat watching you uh watching you surf um you know it's just uh uh you know i I, I mean i surf but you know nowhere 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 near your level um but it's just uh fun to be able to i mean i'm so glad like youtube and stuff like that exists so 
for like kids today that are growing up, you know, when my son gets a little bit older and all the other kids that, you know, um, you know, I can say, oh, you should study Sean Thompson or you should study, you know, Laird Hamilton, Laird Hamilton or, you know, Greg Noel or, or, uh, or, you know, or Slater or somebody like that. And, uh, it's just a lot of fun to, to have all the, all that surf, uh, video out there now to, you know, to be able to appreciate it. It's really cool. But, uh, anyway, yeah, but, uh, to explain why, um, sort of you're such a big deal. (laughs) Uh, uh, so you're a world surfing champion. You're in, uh, surfer magazines, uh, top 10 all time surfers. Uh, you know, you're part of that free ride generation. You and you and Richards and Ian Cairns and, uh, Pete Towand and, you know, all those Aussie guys. And you, you basically created professional surfing. You know, surfing is now, you know, an industry that earns something like $10 billion a year. And you guys were really instrumental in creating that. Uh, but more important than that, and, uh, is the stylistic innovations you guys helped pioneer. Um, you know, you guys basically owned the North Shore of Oahu and in the 70s. And yeah, you're, you're basically like the king of pipeline. Uh, I forget how many pipe masters you've won, uh, but it's a few. Uh, you revolutionized big wave surfing. You specifically, you know, uh, how to explain this to people. Deep drops in the barrels and, uh, you know, carving in the walls, you know, power, speed, aggressive rides, expressive rides. You know, you know, before that big wave riding was, you know, straight lines, straight rides, you know, grace, stoicism and, and you had a totally different way of, you know, of attacking those waves. And beyond all that stuff, you know, you've built uh, clothing brands. You were on the board of directors of the Surfrider Foundation, which is a, you know, a great and important environmental non-pro- nonprofit that, uh, that works to protect oceans and beaches. Uh, you know, you've done a lot of stuff. <laughs> yeah, I've, I've been in a, you know, I mean, been really lucky, I think, in my career to have to have been involved with with a passion um, at a very uh, at a very sort of young age, and also in, in the early stage of the development, I think, of the lifestyle art sport of uh, of pro surfing. So, um, myself and friends of ours were really at at sort of a moment in time when we could, uh, I think, make some impactful change. Um, and certainly, uh, for me, it was initially always about the passion and always about the love and always about the intensity of the experience. I mean, I got into surfing uh, in the same way that, you know, millions of, of young people across the world will get into their chosen sport, you know, football, baseball, basketball, mm-hmm. soccer, uh, whatever it is. Uh, but I really I think I was able to, um, to take it beyond just that passion into uh, sporting endeavor, into um, business, into leadership, into books, into, into many, many different areas. But the nucleus, and I think the, the core of it all was that, was that, that burning hot passion, that, that desire. Um, and I was really lucky in that, you know, I found that early. The first moment I stood up on a surfboard, uh, really burned into my consciousness, and that was at nine years old. And when I stood up for the first time, I I looked out in the world differently, 
and mm. it altered me and it changed me. And my path was really set at, at a young age. And I was really fortunate uh, that I had parents who were able to um, support me um, and help me down that path. And it's interesting that, you know, when I sort of look back and I see that moment uh, in 1965, which was so, so long ago, that it really, um, I think it created this path for me. And yes, I had to build the path along the way and I had to build the road and I had to help, you know, build surfing and, 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 and build a career. But I was, I was really fortunate that I found it. And, you know, I've devoted my life over the last uh, 20 years to helping other people find their path. Mm. Uh, using a simple method that I outline in, in my new book is how can you help people really find this passion? How can you help people find their path? And and I do it by a really simple process that's outlined in my book and it's it's not a um, it's not a prescriptive process. It's it's just my perspective. But this process has helped millions of people and, and I do outline it in, in, in this new book is mm. it's really it's really a, a simple process, but it's a really intense period of just 20 minutes, 15 to 20 minutes of intense introspection, uh, commitment, and then action. And what I encourage people to do around the world is just take out a sheet of paper and write 12 lines, every line beginning with our will. And I call this writing your code, the code method, 12 lines, every line beginning with with our will and millions of people have done this simple process and it's just uh, it's sort of a beautiful cathartic liberating process and also it's very if you do it with your family or if you do it with colleagues at work or you do it with a sports team or you do it I mean many people have done it in all sorts of environments PTSD sure. survivors uh, inmates in prisons um, the, the largest corporations in the world uh, schools, universities, eminent universities. I was at uh, Kellogg at Northwestern last week. Uh, it's just a really w wonderful, simple process. And it's open source code, so it's free, it's simple. <laughs> um, and um, it's wonderful. And it's it came from surfing. It all, all, all came from this passion that I had. And you mentioned that I, I was involved with Surfrider Foundation. I was the first ambassador for this wonderful non-profit organization, which is dedicated to preserving and protecting the world's waves, oceans, and beaches. And uh, many years ago, when they were formulating the organization, the, the initial founder phoned me up and he said, hey, Sean, you know, you're the number one guy in the world. We would love you to be our first ambassador for um, for this new organization that we're forming. We really need a poster. <laughs> yeah, you were, the, you were the poster. You were, you were on the T-shirts. You were like the... Yeah. You were like Jerry West in the NBA. You were the logo, you know. <laughs> and he said, he said, but what we also need is we need a um, we need a like a mission statement. Uh, and I wrote, "Do a good turn today." I wrote those five words. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, those five words have really become a touchstone for me, um, and uh, it helped I think kickstart Surfrider Foundation, um, but. Even back then, and that was so long ago that, that I wrote those five words, I realized that words have unbelievable power mm. to act on positive change. You know, the words of, of great presidents, great leaders, great writers have amazing power. 
But I, I truly believe that the words that have the most power of all are our words, not the words of Winston Churchill or of Obama or of Reagan right. or uh, of great presidents. Yes, these words have incredible power and resonance to inspire and influence. But the words that have the greatest power of all are our words. And, and that's why I love the simple code process. Yes, when we write these beautiful words, we are influenced by great leaders, um, by great writers. But these words come from our heart and are certainly a, an activation to positive change. And beyond that, they're also a way to unify. Mm-hmm. Because our country is so terribly divided at the moment you have Republicans on one side of the valley, you have Democrats on the other, and you have this negative space, negative space in between. And I've found that when people write their codes and in large audiences, they stand up and they read the codes to one another. We all realize, no matter what political persuasion you might be, um, we realize that we are bound together by commonality. We're bound together by common values. And when people write their beautiful lines, I will pray, I will have faith. I will, uh, I will hope, um, I will be a better husband, I'll be a better father, I will do what I say I will do, I'll, I'll live a life of moral integrity. No one ever writes, and I've read millions of lines of code, I will be a better Republican or I will be a better Democrat. They do not write politics, they do not yeah. write, I will hit my third quarter goals, they do not write, I will be a financial success. People do not write this. People look inside themselves. They find the best version of themselves. And that's what we aspire to. And while I've, I've read millions of lines of code and the most beautiful, uh, inspiring words, people really only write two lines. And we write, I will be better. We have a genetic compulsion to be better tomorrow than we are today. Right. We, we want to be lifelong learners. We want to live a moral life, we, we, we want to be people of integrity, so we want to be better, we want to be better husbands, spouses, fathers, children, and then the other line that people write, which is really interesting, and codes are really divided amongst these two lines, I mean, everyone writes both of these in their 12-line statement, but I will help others be better, so we want to help, we want, to, we want the world to be a better place, we want to lift up our friends who are down. We want to lift up our family when they're, they're down. And so this is the process that, this is the new, new way that I've been writing for the last um, 15 years or so. And, and I outlined it in my book. It really, really all started when I, when I lost my beautiful son. Mm. When I lost our beautiful son when he was 15 and a half to a poor choice. He played a dangerous game that you heard about at school called the choking game. Uh, and we don't know whether it was, you know, peer, a pre-pressure thing, but all the kids at school were school ties, and he just played this game that he heard about at school. So, so this process that I've been on, yes, it's about finding our best self and and being better and helping others be better. But it's also also about self-empowerment. You know, those two words, "I will." Mm-hmm. These are very, very powerful, strong words. And and when I first started doing this process. Uh, and the very first students I asked, please write your code, 12 lines, every line begins with I will. The very first line I got back from a student who was 13 at the time, a young girl, she wrote, I will, I will be myself. 
And those words, you know, were so resonant to me because I lost my son a couple of months before. And, and I just thought, wow, this is a powerful statement from a young person who wasn't yeah. going to be victimized. She wasn't going to be a, a, a she wasn't going to be bullied. She was going to just be herself. And and this is really, I think, one of the sparks that set me along this path of if, if it could help this young this young person, perhaps it could help millions of other people in all sorts of different areas. Just write your code, 12 lines. Mm. Every line gives it that well. It's super simple, but very, very powerful. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, uh, you know, when I was a teenager, uh, you know, I, I remember my grandfather, you know, telling me that, uh, you know, every night before you go to bed, uh, you know, when you're getting ready in the bath, you know, brushing your teeth and getting ready for bed in the bathroom, you should look in the mirror and, you know, look at yourself and ask yourself if you were a better, if you were a better man today than you were the day before. And, uh, in response to that, I, I, I sort of had, you know, long ago, it was basically, you know, my own, uh, code, but, uh, but so I basically just, when I was in my, you know, twenties, early twenties, something like that, I just wrote down on a, on a, you know, just a little piece of loose leaf paper, you know, I will, you know, be a better man today than I was yesterday. And then I just taped it up, uh, in my bathroom over the mirror. And, uh, <laughs> I remember, uh, like a friend of mine came over, like a female friend of mine, and she saw it. She was, you know, she used the bathroom and she saw it, like right after I put it up. And she's like, "Why did you put that up? That's so weird." And I was like, "Well, I was like, I don't, I don't know." I was like, "Is it?" I was like, "It's just, it's just a reminder. It's just, you know, when I start my day, you know, um, it's it's a reminder for me to take stock of what I have, what you know, to uh, to be grateful and thankful for what I have, and uh, and just, you know, and just like I said, just try to make sure that, um, I make a mental note to myself <laughs> in the morning that, you know, every day I'm going to, I'm going to try to be better today than I was yesterday. And, um, so yeah, when I was reading about the code, uh, you know, the surface code and then, and then the code and everything, uh, you know, that sort of struck me. I was like, wow, I, you know, um, how simple it is, um, but you know how effective it is. You know, <laughs> you know what I mean. It's just uh, uh, and probably effective because of its simplicity. And you know, I'm sure that's why the code is so effective as well, as because of the the simplicity of it. And and probably you know the repeti- like you said, just 12 lines, each line starting with "I will." You know that repetition. I don't know if there's something spiritual in that or religious in that uh you know the repetition or if it becomes almost like a uh like a prayer or a mantra or something like that um but like i said the it just a very simple powerful thing to do um you know for anybody out there yeah it's deeply spiritual i think uh, many people uh, will write i will i'll have faith um it's also it's really about hope which mm-hmm perhaps is, um, you know, at the core of, of most religions, you know, we, 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 we suffer and, uh, you know, faith gives us, certainly gives us um, hope. So people just write such beautiful uh, words. And then there's been, you know, I believe that the, that the code is, is a way for, for us to, 
to find our purpose or, or perhaps not find purpose or perhaps refine purpose because sometimes mm-hmm. in the complexities and busyness of life, you know, we lose that core focus because so many things are, are coming at us. Yeah. Um, and certainly I think the code's a way to activate purpose, that committed intention to just be better and do better things for the world. I mean, that's kind of the straight up definition of what purpose is, what, what that North Star is. But you know, when, when I, uh, now I've been sharing my co-author and I were formulating the book, it was during, uh, during COVID. Hmm. So I was doing a lot of virtual presentations to all sorts of groups across the world, very large corporations, thousands of people at a time. Um, and I would ask people at the beginning of my presentation, I would say, send me one word that describes how you're feeling right now. And I use this pretty cool technology. People text me a word and it forms a word cloud. And mm, if right. doesn't know what a word cloud is, is the more frequent words, the more common words come up larger on the, on the screen. So I would be presenting on a PowerPoint and people would text me from all over the world and you'd get thousands of words come in and it would, uh, in, in a brief snap, snapshot, you could see which, which were the words that were on the, tops of everyone's minds. And the four words were stress, anxiety, depression, and disconnection. So those were the, I mean, yes, there was hope and faith and optimism, but but smaller, but those were the words that were really the most common. So I called it a sad mindset. Mm -hmm. Stress, anxiety, depression, disconnection. Um, And I think fundamentally a lot of the issues were caused by this disconnection. You know, disconnection from each other, disconnection from our purpose, perhaps disconnection from faith, disconnection from, from hope. So I told Noah this, I said, hey, no, you know, we got this. There's this fundamental issue out there in society. Okay, so I maybe spoke to 100, 150,000 people during that period. So I had, I had data. When I say data, it, it was, you know, data just that had been texted to me. It wasn't like academic data. Um, so I said, you know, perhaps this book can be like a bridge from the darkness to the light. And I said, how many chapters do you think we should have? Because Noah is a student of the Bible. Mm-hmm. He's a Pulitzer-nominated poet and philosopher. And I said, like, what number? What number is spiritually significant? So he said to me, well, 18. He said, every letter in Hebrew has a numeric. He said, and the word chai, which means life, is 18. So that's why we wrote the book, 18 mm-hmm. chapters. We wanted the, each chapter to be about the duality of life. So anxious and calm, despair and hope. And right. each chapter is a little perspective on, on, on how we see despair and hope, and perhaps you can move from despair to hope by perhaps reading some of our words and then writing your own words and writing your own path. So that's the whole sort of basic concept of the book and, and how we wrote it. And while we, while we wrote it together, we also wrote it separately. You know, I, I would write my piece and he'd write his piece, and mm-hmm. sometimes he'd write his piece and I'd write my piece. So <clears throat> it's almost like mine is... Uh, more literal and experiential, while his is more poetic and philosophical, perhaps. Right. And I think, you know, both of us 
sort of merged together quite well. So it was a very fun, it was a very, a very fun process. And, uh, um, you know, we're hoping that this book can be, it's very small, it's very simple, you know, it can be read in a couple of hours. And we just hope that it can be a tool to help people. That's, that's the goal. Yeah, it's a it's a really cool little book. I mean, like you said, it's got those 18 chapters, 18 connected chapters, you know, on those different themes. As you said, like despair and hope, uh, guilt and forgiveness, uh, confusion and clarity, you know, frailty and resilience, et cetera, et cetera. And then, like you said, uh, each chapter, you know, has anecdotes from you, uh, from your experiences in life and, you know, in the water. And then uh, Noah Benche's, you know, the, that philosophical wisdom on each of those themes, you know. You know, hence the title, The Surfer and the Sage. But, yeah, and there's also, besides that, there's also some really great uh, uh, photography in there, too. Not just of uh, you surfing, but, uh, uh, you know, uh, surf spots and waves and beaches all over the world. You know, eye candy for for us uh, us beach rats. Uh, but, uh, yeah, so uh, you mentioned um, your process. How, uh, and you mentioned a little bit about who... Noah Benche is, uh, but how did you how did you guys meet, and when did you just decide to do the book together? Like, how long had you known each other before you were like, hey, we should do a book? <laughs> so, so firstly, you know, thanks for mentioning the uh, the photographs. They all done by yeah. fabulous photographer Dan Merkel, who's sort of an iconic figure in the yeah in the surfing world. And we should you know wanted to show show some beautiful aspects of his work, not just kind of surf stuff, but, but sort of beautiful, uh, almost like spiritual yeah. pictures. But Noah and I, <coughs> we, we met shortly before COVID, and a friend of ours set us up for lunch. And even though we live in the same area in Santa Barbara, we'd never we'd never actually physically met. We'd sort of crossed paths, but we'd never really met. And we had lunch, and he chatted to me, and I chatted to him. And within 10 minutes of meeting, said to me, Hey Sean, let's write a book together. Oh wow, ten minutes. <laughs> and uh, I went, I went cool. We'll call it the Surfer and the Sage. <laughs> he said, right on. Dive, survive and ride life's waves. Kaboom. Yeah. The concept, awesome. the concept was there in just a few minutes, and you know when I when I think back, what I like about the the, the concept, and and if I had to give any of the of the listeners. Uh, this is, you know, my perspective, not so much advice, it's just a perspective that, you know, in my life and and um, I've always tried to say yes rather than no. You, you know, you, you read so much about say no, life is so busy, just say no, say no, say no. And and I'm more of the opinion that, you know, when you when you say yes, super cool things happen because it, it's a way you can connect with others and it's a way you can connect with new projects. So, I mean, how easy would it have been to say, oh, no, you know, I think it's a great mm-hmm. idea. I'm just too busy. And, and, you know, yes, we're all very busy in our lives. But I went, yeah, right on. Let's, let's, let's do it. And it's been such a, a wonderful um, experience. And my very first book, uh, Surface Code, I, I, uh, I gave a talk at a, at an event that was actually held by uh, the guy who started Surfrider Foundation, and I spoke about this little card that I'd written, Surface Code, which was the origin of of all my books. Uh, Glenn Henning, who started Surfrider Foundation, phoned me up and he said, "Hey, Sean, 
Rincon, one of the most famous surfing breaks in the world, is facing oh, yeah. a severe environmental challenge. Um, I'm bringing a group of kids down to the beach to create awareness. I want you to give the kids something. You've got a hundred dollar budget. I'm going to bring about 80 kids down and I'm going to bring the media and the local water board down. He said, I want you to give them something to inspire them. So I wrote surface code, 12 lines. Every line begins with, I will. And I wrote down the lessons, the fundamental 12 lessons surfing had taught me about life. And I printed them up on a little card and I gave them out to the kids and the kids loved the cards and it turned into a groundswell and ultimately we solved the environmental problem. And then we started printing more and more of the cards. My wife and I had an apparel company and we put the cards in the pockets of our clothing and we printed out tens of thousands of these cards. So the cards sort of distributed out into the culture and people would phone me up, hey, Sean, why don't you come and talk mm-hmm. about Surface Code at this event we're having? So Glenn phoned me up and he said, Sean, I'm having an event called the Groundswell Society. I'd love you to, to come and talk at my event. And I spoke and after the event, a guy came up to me, he said, hey, Sean, <clears throat> you spoke about Surface Code, 12 lines. He said, I think it would make a, a terrific book. He said, um, uh, and I said, well, you know, I've never written a book before. He said, well, neither have I, but I'm a professor of French literature at Drury University in the Midwest. My name's Patrick Moser, and why don't we collaborate? So that was a big yes for me. Yeah. So, And that, that really, in some ways took my life down a different path and I've always found it so much it's so much more productive and life is better when you say yes yeah absolutely uh, so change the topic a little bit so uh, the subtitle of the book is a guide to survive and ride life's waves but uh, but beyond that why don't you sort of explain to everybody what what is a what does a wave mean to a surfer you know a what what does what does a wave uh, signify? <laughs> well, yeah, you know, a wave is a wave is 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 everything. Yeah, every, every wave is unique. Uh, every wave, in its own way, is is beautiful. Uh, you know, waves are so varied. Uh, every single surf spot uh, creates a different sort of wave. You might have a reef break, which creates a very sort of sudden dangerous wave you might have yeah. a, a point break which might create a wave that might be uh, much more predictable much longer some point breaks in south africa and, and australia and other parts of the world you can ride a wave of, of of over a mile in length which is which is just an amazing 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 sensation so uh, waves are, 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 are all different and uh Every wave, in some ways, is like a geographic fluke, and there are these some mm-hmm. waves around the world, uh, these really unique waves where surfers will travel halfway around the world to surf them. Waves in the Mentawa Islands in Indonesia, special waves in in Australia, Jeffrey's Bay in South Africa. Uh, Your spot, yeah, J Bay. Yeah, yeah. so uh, they're absolutely unique. It's not like if you're a golfer you will walk up to, um, you know, a different um, uh, a different venue where, yes, every single golfing venue is different. But in surfing, they're constantly changing. So, mm-hmm. you know, the 18th hole 
will be constant. Uh, maybe you'll have a little bit more wind and maybe there'll be a, a, a variation in humidity, but it's relatively constant. But no matter which surfing break you surf, it's it's in a state of constant flux. Yeah. The wave is, is it's, it's not that it's unpredictable uh, and it's not that it's relatively predictable. It sort of sits in that area there where you can't quite predict it, but with your experience and knowledge, mm-hmm. they have going to be able to to react but it can still always surprise you that's the always know, yeah absolutely surprise you and every time you go surfing it's a surprise because you never know what you're going to get i mean maybe yeah. you'll look at the weather map or you'll look at a surf prediction and you go down there but but you never know what you're going to get so so if there's one thing i think that that surfers have um, as a stereotype <laughs> have hope and optimism yeah yeah, for sure. Wake up early, sometimes in the dark, you yeah. drive. To- dawn patrol. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Dawn patrol, and yeah. you know, yeah, but, but you go anyway, even though, like, oh, man, I don't know if it's going to be that good today, but you go anyway. Yeah. So we are all sort of imbued with with that hope and optimism, and it's a really good way, I think, to look at the world, you know, to look at the world with, uh, to look at the world with hope and look at the world with optimism and and, you know, as surfers, we know that, that that next wave is going to be coming, which is... Right, right. It's always, it's always out there. It's always... The next one, the next one's going to be great, you know? Yeah. 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 Now, I've always, uh, I've always thought about it, like, I, I different uh, surf spots, surf breaks and stuff. It's like they have, I've always thought about, like, it's like they have, like, their own, they each have their own personality, right? You know, they're each different. And it's almost like they're, this is kind of weird for people who don't surf, but I mean, it's almost like they're like a person almost. And like, you're getting to know, <laughs> so when you surf a place, like you're getting to know like a person, uh, you know, like that has its own sort of, uh, quirks and, uh, you know, different aspects about them. And y- you try to, uh, familiarize yourself, you know, the more you, you ride a certain spot or whatever. But, um, uh, but like I said, you know, even however, however long you surf a, you surf a surf beach, um, like I said, no matter how well you know it, that beach can surprise you that, you know, the, the waves can surprise you, the break can surprise you. And, um, so it's sort of like, uh, people, in a, you know, in a way, like, you know, uh, you know, no matter how long you've known somebody, somebody, uh, you know, has the, the, um, ability to surprise you, but also just going to different places that you've never surfed before and, you know, you know, paddling out and, uh, you know, trying to ride and all that stuff. It's like getting to know somebody, uh, like a stranger, you know, and, um, and, uh, I, I'm sorry, I'm sort of rambling, but it, you, you know what I mean? It's like it's... Uh, no, very it, much so. Yeah, uh, it's... I, I agree with you. And, and also, you know, every spot has its... Um, in some ways, you know, if you use that that, that sort of human metaphor, is, it has its moods. Right, you know, exactly, you can, moods. That's what I was thinking of. Yeah, you can yeah. paddle out at the Banzai Pipeline on a beautiful, sparkling, clear, four to six foot day, and it can be just a, a beautiful, fun experience. And then you can paddle out the very next day when it's 12 to 15 feet and it's breaking out on the second reef and, <laughs> and there's a howling northeast trade wind and those waves are standing up 
absolutely vertical and, and yeah. it's a life and death situation and it's like wow it's gone from it's gone from happy to mean as hell <laughs> yeah yeah exactly yeah. yeah why don't you tell every uh speaking of pipeline um that the chapter on you know anxiousness or anxious and calm uh you talk about uh you know you tie that into to surfing pipe for the first time uh why don't you tell everybody what that was like or, or, or tell everybody what uh what makes pipeline so unique and frightening <laughs> and uh and what was what was that first drop like uh for you at pipeline so the Banzai pipeline is the most dangerous wave in the world yes there are waves today that are bigger um but more people have died at the pipeline than anywhere else i think it's about 18 people that have died at the pipeline yeah. and people die there because you're surfing over a very shallow coral reef. So you have a wave that's coming uh, coming out of about 3,000 feet of water, and it's it's focusing all its energy um, onto a coral reef that's between four and six foot deep. So the wave stands up straight. Uh, it's vertical. It's almost like jumping off uh, the side of a building. Yeah. Uh, waves, uh, the biggest you can ride pipeline is maybe 15 feet. I mean, it doesn't sound that big in the context of these large waves that people are riding today, but it's very dangerous because it's so shallow, the coral's jagged, and there's this incredibly powerful riptide or current that flows along, uh, right along the, the beach. As the wave impacts, you have this very, very strong current. So if a surfer gets, gets uh, knocked out, separated from your surfboard or often your board will break or your leash gets ripped off it's very difficult for the lifeguards to to get to you in time because you can be out you know you'll you'll drown in, in, in certainly in a couple of minutes and because these waves are constant you know you'll get a seven and eight wave set and then you'll get another seven and eight wave set pump they just can't get in even though they're on jet skis to rescue in time and certainly the it's gotten a lot more crowded over the years, a lot more dangerous, but certainly now with lifeguards on jet skis, they're rescuing a lot more people, but still it's, it's just incredibly dangerous. And also when you're paddling over the edge, when I say over the edge, this wave comes towards you and you see it and you select that wave and you have to for a brief moment match the wave's speed in order to catch the wave and you take off as the wave is at its highest point, uh, as it hits that reef, it stands up vertically and you, you paddle over that edge and you drop in and you look down, it's like the black coral of death. It's <laughs> just dark and you know it's there, but obviously, you know, you want to put that out of your mind and you're just concentrating on on, on making that drop. And when I first read that read Surface Code so many years ago, I, I just thought of Pipeline and I read, I will take the drop with commitment. <laughs> and yes, it's, it's about writing Pipeline, but it's also, I think, a metaphor for life that, you know, yeah. you really have to... If you want to be successful, you really have to take that that drop with commitment. So you're dropping down that wave absolutely vertically, and you know the first few times I rode it, it was incredibly intimidating, incredibly scary because I'd known that people, um, you know, had got killed out there. I knew that. How old were you when you first? You were like a baby. I was very, very young. Yeah, the very first time I rode it. Um, I was 14 years old. Wow. Nice. Those days, you know, that was that was very young. Um, today, guys are riding it, you know, when they're 12 and 13 years old. I mean, yeah, yeah. John, John Florence. But, you know, in, the, in those days, it, it was it was very young. I was coming from 
South Africa, but I really started to to go hard out there when I was uh, when I was a teenager, when I was 19 years old, and I'd <clears throat> I'd had this board made in South Africa, a special board for Hawaii. It eventually became very famous. Oh, the banana, the pink banana, yeah. yeah. And uh, it, it, you know, it was a revolutionary. Ended up being a revolutionary board for riding pipeline, but it was a fluke initially. Um, it was made for a place called Sunset Beach, which was a neighbouring break, one of the sort of premier big wave venues in the world. Uh, but the board had extreme curve in it, rocker. Surface called it rocker. Uh, so at Sunset Beach, it, it was a terrible sort of board. It just didn't work out there. But in the very, very steep waves at the Benzai Pipeline, it enabled me to take off later than anyone else had taken off at the time mm. and enabled me to maneuver up inside the tube and then also off the top of the wave because Pipeline had very much been a uh, kind of a straight line approach. You know, take that big drop, do a bottom turn and then and then like fly like an arrow straight. But, but it enabled me to sort of break that straight line. So it was, it was a very, uh, very fluky board. Uh, and, I, and I, I still can't get over you, you guys, you know, riding big wave back then with, you know, on single fin, <laughs> you know, like that just, that just boggles my mind that, you know, you guys were able to do that, you know, I mean, I'm just so used to, you know, having three fin boards and everything like that. But, um, yeah, I, I mean, uh, that's just, uh, I can't believe 14 years old, man. That was, that's crazy. Yeah, so there's been, a, I mean, a huge, like you mentioned, there's been a huge advance in surfboard technology and surfboard design. And 1981, famous Australian Simon Anderson created a three-fin surfboard, and that really has become the standard. Yes. So it's made, uh, it's made, I think, surfing way more progressive. Um, and, and certainly the young guys today are just, you know, the way they're surfing at the Bamsa Pipeline. Um, I mean, Kelly Slater recently won an event that. Mm. Uh, last, uh, you know, must be about 10 months ago now, at, fi- at, 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 at just approaching 50 years old, which was an incredible feat. Yeah, he's a freak, man. Yeah, I yeah it's just a superhuman athlete. Yeah. And, um, you know, wonderful to see him, you know, win at, at, at a break that is most that is still the most dangerous wave in the world, and also a break that um, is really about reflexes and really about reactivity as opposed to analysis and planning uh and and you know to show people that that even at 50 you can still have that master of your of your mind body and spirit um and and be able to win against the best young guys in the world at the most dangerous wave in the world i think it's one of the greatest certainly one of the greatest surfing achievements ever and you know it's really up there with one of the greatest sporting achievements ever yeah yeah he's uh he's just uh like you said he's a phenomenal freak human being <laughs> it's just uh but um anyway but speaking of uh uh speaking of kelly slater and uh speaking of you know and yourself but um i want to ask you a bit about your a little bit about your dad um because he has such an interesting story in his own right uh and he was such a obviously a big influence on you and uh such a supporter of you, um, you know, and your, your surf career. Um, tell us a little about your dad, uh, because he's a, <laughs> he's got such a, he's got, uh, such an incredible story of his own, uh, you know, really, really remarkable, remarkable guy. Yeah, he was a, he, he, he's a, he's a wonderful, loving father. I was 
was very fortunate. And it's interesting when, uh, you know, when, when people write their codes, uh, a, a lot of um, a lot of men write, I will be a better father. Yeah. So this is sort of a fundamental uh, mission and purpose for, for us is to be, to be better fathers. I think we, we all realize that this is sort of a, a never-ending quest just to be a better dad and how important this is uh, in our lives and the lives of our, of our kids. So my, my dad was just this incredible, um, incredible role model for me. Um, not, not just supportive of my career, but just in the, you know, in the way he, um, in the way he lived his life. Hmm. Uh, he was a champion swimmer when he was young. He was a South African junior champion when he was 13 years old and, his dream was to go to the Olympics. Uh, he volunteered for the Second World War and came back and resumed his swimming career in the London Olympics uh, were coming up. And he was out there in the surf on a little wooden surfboard because he was a surfer as well. Um, and he was very badly attacked by a shark. In fact, the shark came up underneath him and on the front page of the paper it said, uh, I was lifted clear from the water. It was an ideal day for surfing and for sharks. <clears throat> so he savaged his right arm, just ripped out all the muscle and tendons, and you know he never regained complete use of his um, of his right arm. So it was a really savage attack, and he nearly died. You know he was lucky that all his people that were in the water sort of left him out there, and a, uh, a brave lifeguard swam out and eventually pulled him in. And I'd asked my dad years years later, I mean, this is kind of how my dad looked at life. I'd ask him, you know, years later when I was old enough to understand what happened. Hey, daddy, daddy, what, what happened to the shark? And he <laughs> told me that he was in the water and, you know, the water all turned red with his blood and this fin was circling him. Uh, he said he was so frightened. I said, so, daddy, daddy, what happened to the shark? He said, oh, the shark died of blood poisoning. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, he always looked at life with, with, with a sense of humor. But he, um, he was rescued, and eventually it was a long period of recuperation. Uh, he was flown to the United States, to San Francisco, for arm surgery, and then he recuperated in Hawaii. Uh, his hero was a very famous champion swimmer called Jukahanamoku, mm. Hawaii's first gold medalist, multiple gold medalist, uh, competed in three Olympics. It's amazing. like the Johnny Appleseed of surfing. Almost. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He, he is he is sort of the he's he's like the legend. He's 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 the he's the duke, you know. It's, it's, he's the duke. Yeah. He's the duke of, of surfing, and then Duke became Duke became my hero. But I think when my father came back, you know, he was really uh, impacted by I think the wonderful and he, and he you know he met all the Kahanamoku family, and I think um, you know he was really impacted by by that wonderful spirit of theirs. And then when he came back. Um, you know, he never lost his love for the ocean. And, and when I was born a number of years later, you know, he taught me how to swim and surf a hundred yards away from where he'd had this terrible attack. So in the surface code, the very first line is, I'll never turn my back on the ocean. Right, right. It's kind of like a, a sort of a Hawaiian-esque commitment. Uh, you know, yes, the ocean's a dangerous place and you don't want to turn your back on it. But also, you know, you're passionate and you love it and you can't, ever turn your back on it. So, you know, that was sort of a fundamental lesson that that he taught me. And then just the way that he 
supported me in, in my athletic endeavor as I was starting to become better as a, as a surfer. You know, in, in South Africa, we had to play traditional sports. We had to play rugby and cricket. And um, my dad would come and he'd turn up at the rugby matches, you know, as a support. And sometimes he'd be the only parent there. And then after school, if the surf was good, he'd pick me and my brother and my cousin up and he'd take us surfing. And if there were surfing contests on, he'd support us or he'd take us on trips uh, down to the, the, the different different surfing breaks. And, you know, he did this because he loved us. And yes, mm. he loved surfing and he could see this was my passion. But I think as a dad, he gave me his time. Yeah. And I think that's one of the most important things that a parent can do with their children is, is just give them time and give them encouragement. And yes, my dad loved it when I was successful. But he was never cross or he was never... Uh, upset or sad when I didn't do well. And and he, he would say to me, which was a wonderful lesson, I think, for any father and for any um, athlete is, he said, winning is easy. When you win, you win like a gentleman. Mm. And when you lose, you lose like a man. Uh, yeah. Very important. And he had said to me, son, the, the judge's decision is inscribed in stone. He said, you will never change that decision. So after a decision is made, you know, no amount of crying or, or moaning or complaining will change that decision. You just accept it and you move on. Um, and, you know, after at last I would walk up, I'd shake hands with, with the person that, that defeated me or, or I won, and, and I'd just move on. And that was a wonderful lesson for an athlete. You know, athletes, you can get obsessed with a loss and you can get caught in this downward spiral of, of defeat you're just thinking about the loss and you spin further and further down ultimately it's going to affect your mindset it's going to affect your performance so for me it was just really a really positive I, I think positive way to approach um, athletics and to approach surfing and when I was in the water he would never be there directing traffic you know, I would never be looking back on the beach to see where my dad was signaling me to go to this spot or that spot. Right. Like when I was on the own, when I was in the water, it was my responsibility. And all this responsibility was in my hands. It wasn't in my father's hands. So I could see that, yes, he loved me to win and I loved to win for him. But it was my choice, my decisions that were the difference between uh, winning and losing. And, you know, he never, ever complained if I came in and lost. All he wanted me to do was was just to make sure that, um, you know, I did my best out there. Yeah. Uh, and, and I was, you know, one of the one of the greatest moments for me was, was uh, he was on the beach. He flew over to Hawaii in 1975, and he was on the beach with me. When I won the biggest contest in the world at the time, the, the, the Pipeline Masters, I was the youngest guy to win it ever, and he was there watching, and it was such an amazing moment for me, you know, to be there and to win. Yes, I, I won for myself and won for my country, but I won for him. <laughs> it, it, you know, it, it's just a great moment for a for a son to, in some ways, uh, you know, my dad to be there with him. Yes, maybe his dream didn't come through. He never won a gold at the Olympics, but 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 like I won the Masters and I won it for him. 
so beautiful. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah that's great. Um, yeah, uh, speaking of fathers and sons, and um, you mentioned your uh, the loss of your son Matthew um, to the choking game, uh, you know that tragic accident, and um, I'm hesitant to ask you about him and about what happened because I know I, I lost my mother unexpectedly last year, and um, I'm sorry. Uh, Yes. Thank you. Um, so I know when you lose somebody unexpectedly, you know, no, no matter how far away from it it is, you never really totally get past it. You know, it's um, and I can only imagine. I mean, you know, as as a as as a child, you know, eventually one day you're going to lose your parents. So in in one respect it's you know it's easier to deal with you know than you know nobody expects to uh lose a child um yes it was it was it was <clears throat> tim it was really uh, you know it was, it was dreadful it was heartbreaking it was very it's a dreadful club and there's thousands and thousands of parents hundreds of thousands millions of parents around the world that are that are faced with this, uh, you know, dreadful loss when you, uh, when you, when you lose a, when you lose a child, and, and um, you know, there's no, there's no way around the the suffering and the pain and the darkness. Mm-hmm. But I'll tell you what, for for any um, for anyone that's that's listening, and this is what I found has helped me because all I can give is is my experience. With, with the loss. Um, so I found that acceptance is really difficult. Uh, but that is, there's many different ways that one can sort of approach the different stages of, of grief or suffering or healing. Um, and, and I found for me that, that the sooner one can accept the this finality, this dreadful finality of the loss that you just have to accept what is and not what if. You can't go, well, what if I'd done this or what if I hadn't done this or what if my wife had done this or what if my wife hadn't done this? It's, you, you've lost your beautiful son, but the spirit and that love will never, ever be extinguished. That will never, that, that, is, a, that is a constant in one's life that even though you've lost the physical that physical sensation of being able to hug your child, you'll never lose that beautiful love that, that you had. So you, you have to accept that, the, the finality of it. And then you have to absolutely and unconditionally forgive. Uh, forgive everyone associated with it, with that dreadful loss. So, you know, um, forgive yourself, forgive your child, forgive your wife, forgive forgive. Anyone that might have been associated with uh, with with the loss—it's just absolute, unconditional forgiveness. Then uh, I found that getting involved with a project that is in memory of your child is is a beautiful thing. And also, you know, I, I came up with my book. I, I, I made the film "Busting Down the Door." Uh, 
these projects were, you know, were very inspiring to me and they were inspiring to others. And it really helped me uh, in, in some ways memorialize the memorialize my, my son's life because I used the beautiful words that he'd written um, in my books and I used them in the um, I used them in uh, my, in the movie um, and then I think it's super important to be open to help and that help might be from family it might be from friends it might be from professional people but be vulnerable and understand that, that you do need help and friends and family and professional people can certainly uplift you. Then get in touch with nature and whatever that might be. You know, for me, it was, took me a long, long time to go surfing. Uh, but eventually, eventually I, I, I did. And, you know, surfing for me was also like getting back in touch with my faith. And I got back in touch with my faith. You know, I'd sit in the, I'd sit in the synagogue where I had my bar mitzvah and, right above the Torah, which is the five books of Moses. At every Jewish synagogue, there's a there's a light. That light's called Ner Tamed, the everlasting light. And that really was reflective of, of, of all of us, no matter what, what religion you are, Christian, Catholic, uh, Muslim, Hindu, Sikh, whatever, whatever you are, you know, there is that, there's that light that is the core of all religions, the, that, that, light of, that light of hope. And, and, and it's wonderful to reconnect with that. So when I when I lost my son, and I didn't want to go surfing again, uh, a friend kept phoning me, a schoolmate. Oh, Sean, I've got to take you surfing. I've got to take you surfing. I've got to take you. And I went, no, no, no. And eventually I went, okay, I'll, I'll go surfing. He said, Sean, I'm going to take you to a place you've never surfed before. So he took me up the coast, and I was in Durban where I lost my son. Um, and... Uh, we walked down the we walked down these steps to this break, and I'd never surfed the break before, and it was beautiful. The surf was like four feet, four to five feet, and perfect. Hmm. And as we walked down towards the ocean, the sun was burning up, was coming up through the horizon. It was burning up through the Indian Ocean because you're on the east coast, just like on the east coast of Florida, and the sun was boiling up. Mm -hmm. And look in the cover of the surf and the sage. You know, the cover is the sun that's boiling up through the ocean. And, um, you know, shortly before I'd lost my son, he'd written, read me an essay that he'd written at school, and he'd written these words, the light shines ahead. Beautiful, beautiful words. He'd written this essay. And so I walked down the beach, and I'm thinking about my son. I'm thinking about these beautiful words, and the sun's boiling up through the horizon. And I, I paddle out with my mate, and paddling out through the water, and I'm crying, and the, and the waves are washing into me. Like they're washing my tears away. It was just a beautiful sort of cathartic moment and as I paddled out I caught my first wave I swung around and I could feel it my son Matthew his name in Hebrew means gift from God I could feel him is with me and I rode that first wave and I started to feel a bit better and I paddled back out again and I caught another wave and I paddled back out and I, I caught another wave and and then this is how life works and this is how God can work in all of our lives I paddled up to my friend and I said, what's the name of this wave? He said, it's called Sunrise. <laughs> How about that? It's so um, amazing. And I just felt so connected yeah. to the universe and connected to faith and connected to God and connected to my son. By paddling out there, you know, by paddling out there again, when I didn't really want to, but I did, and I connected 
Um, and I found that, 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 you know, the light does shine ahead, that the sun will rise. And no matter the suffering that perhaps as a listener has endured, terrible suffering and lost mom or dad or child, you know, the light, the sun will rise again and the light does shine ahead. If you don't mind me asking, uh, why why did you stop surfing? Was it just uh, because the, the the despair, or did you? Because I like when right after my mom died, um, you know, uh, I sort of felt guilty um, at some points if I were happy or. Um, enjoying myself or you know what i mean just uh uh it felt <laughs> like i shouldn't be um you know i shouldn't be feeling those feelings uh yeah, like it like it was it would like it was uh besmirching her memory or something like that yeah. was it was that sort of like the same I thing think- for you or with surfing was it just like you didn't want to you know yeah, I- ha- have that feeling but I, I, I know that feeling like, you know, I lost my son. How can I ever be, how can I ever be happy again? Right. For me, it was like, um, you know, the stoke, that sort of burning fire had mm. just gone out. It had been, it had been ex- extinguished, extinguished by the loss. It was like, yeah. I just lost that. I'd lost that hope. I'd lost that optimism. I'd lost that enthusiasm. I'd, I'd lost the the fire it was like my everlasting light had, had gone out. And um, and that's what happens, I think, in the blackness of, of grief and despair. But but the light but the light doesn't go out. You might think it's gone out, but, but it doesn't actually go out. And how can you extinguish how can you light it again? Yes, I lit it again by going surfing. I lit it by doing by getting back to my faith, I lit it by opening myself up to help from friends, by doing worthwhile projects, by connecting, by connecting to nature. So, so for anyone that's suffering, this is how they can perhaps use, you know, some of these methods yeah. to help themselves. Yeah, great. All right. Uh, well, I've already kept you a little long. I apologize. Um, and uh, you know, uh, don't want to end on a such sober note. Uh, and there was so much in the book. Uh, I mean, so many notes that I took that I want to discuss with, with the book. But we're not going to get to. Uh, we don't have the time. But um, but I guess I'll I'll ask you uh, the question I ask uh, basically everybody that comes on uh, comes on the podcast, and that is uh, essentially what. Uh, what would you like the audience to get out of uh, of this book? What What's the one thing you'd want a reader to take away from reading it? I think more than anything, hope. All right. I think, I think that <clears throat> that if I can give people that have had. <clears throat> Uh, challenging times, hard times, uh, you know, certainly the subtitle, <clears throat> A Guide to Survive and Ride Life's Waves, is this book's about hope. Right, great, yeah. All right, uh, well, um, before we go, is there uh, 
Anything else uh, you got going on you want to plug? Uh, any appearances? Any uh, uh, social media? Anything like that you want to yeah, uh, sure. get the so, word out? Yeah. Well, firstly, Tim, thanks so much for, for having me on. And thanks oh, for... My pleasure. You know, thanks for, um, I think, connecting with people through your um, through your podcast. You know, people, people need this connection. Like I said to you, you know, four fundamental words were stress, anxiety, depression, and disconnection. So... So these are a wonderful way uh, to connect with people. So, so this is what I uh, this is what I, I, I'd love uh, any audience um, listeners to do is connect with me on LinkedIn. I'm active on LinkedIn. Just go to Sean Thompson S H A U M T O M S O M. Connect with me on Instagram at uh, at Sean Thompson. You can go to my website seanthompson.com and information about the code is on there. So I encourage all of you. Is you can go on the website and these details there or else just bust out a sheet of paper, sit down with the people that you love, sit down with your team at work and all, you t- all of you together, just <laughs> in 15 minutes, write your code, 12 lines. Every line begins with our will and then stand up and share it. And you will be amazed with the magic and the hope and the power and the commitment that you can create. So thanks for having me on, Tim, and uh, have my paths cross in, uh, in real life one of these days. Yeah, yeah. No, like I said, it's uh, uh, my pleasure. Um, I um, I can't tell you how much I enjoyed the book. Um, you know, and uh, my my mom's parents, my grandparents are, are still around, and uh, they're not surfers. <laughs> but... Um, you know, after I read it, you know, I, I, I brought it down to their place and, you know, cause they've been having, uh, you know, a tough go of it, uh, the, this last year. And I was just like, Hey, I'm like, <laughs> I know you don't serve. <laughs> so some of it might be lost on you, but probably not. But I, you know, I gave it to them. I was like, I think you both should, um, should read this. I think it will, uh, you know, be very helpful. Um, you know, and if so, uh, and they enjoyed it too. And, uh, I'm sure everyone out there, uh, will enjoy the book again. Uh, the title is the surfer and the sage, a guide to survive and ride life's waves uh, by uh, Sean Thompson and Noah Benche. And my guest today, one of the co-authors, uh, Mr. Sean Thompson, the legend, uh, the, the total, the total package, <laughs> the surfing total package, uh, you know, that all us, uh, all us little uh, groms were uh, jealous of uh, <laughs> growing up. Uh, it's uh, like I said, it's been uh, my pleasure to have you on uh, to talk to you about uh, surfing and the book and everything else. And uh, I really, really appreciate the time. Thank you very much. Thanks, Tim. Thanks for having me. Uh, Great pleasure. Uh, no problem. And again, if you like this podcast, please consider leaving us a five-star review and sharing it with your friends. And if you have books you'd like to discuss with us on this podcast, you can reach out to me at uh, tbenson at heartland.org. That's uh, T-B-E-N-S-O-N at heartland.org. And for more information about the Heartland Institute, you can just go to heartland.org. And uh, we do have our Twitter account for the uh, for the <laughs> for the podcast. You can reach out to us there if you have any you know, questions, comments, whatever. You know, send us a DM, give us a follow. You know, all that stuff. Our uh, our Twitter account is at illbooks, at I-L-L books. So, yeah, make sure you check that out. And uh, that's pretty much it. So uh, thanks for listening, everybody. We'll see you guys next time. Take care. Love you, Mar- Love you, Robbie. Love you, Mom. Bye-bye.